0: Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. This is part three of our look into Walter Benjamin's Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. If you are just joining us, the prior two episodes contain important background, but if you want to jump right in, this is the chapter where we will begin to tie Benjamin's arguments more closely to the field of architecture through an understanding of historical transformation. Also, the momentum of listeners supporting us through Patreon.com continues to grow. That's patreo ncom lapsuslima. You can also visit our website and click on the orange icon to check it out. Your member contributions not only drive our podcast forward, but will provide you with the additional, customized content that you want to hear. Thank you to listeners Carl and Ronron for signing up this week and helping us shape the future of this podcast. In last episode's discussion, we mentioned how Walter Benjamin had noted that mechanical reproduction was corrosive to traditional values in art. He wanted to use this solvent to eat away at growths of tradition that he felt were quickly metastasizing. We also commented that there has recently been talk of specialists wanting to 3D print ancient Near Eastern artifacts. In the week between our publication of that episode and the writing of this one, exactly such an instance of printing hit the press. The New York Times devoted a March 1, 2016 article to Nora al-Badri and Jan Nikolai Nellis, two German artists who walked into the Neues Museum in Berlin and 3D scanned the bust of Nefertiti, famous queen of Akhenaten. They have since made a promotional film about discovering a printed plastic bust in the desert sands of Egypt, which would be disturbingly self-aggrandizing were it not so patently ridiculous. To complete their Robin Hood shoulders the white man's burden gesture, the artists also presented a fully painted copy to the American University in Cairo. They have, however, been unable to escape Benjamin's logic since the technology they are using undercuts the role they took upon themselves. Their form of activism creates a Hobson's choice. They must go one way or the other. They must have known that if they didn't publicly release the 3D model data files, they would be guilty of the same crime they implicitly accused the museum of, absconding with cultural heritage. If they did release the data, that film and the pomp and circumstance surrounding their donation to the university in Cairo carries all the gravitas of delivering a life-sized photograph of a lost Mark Chagall to a Belarusian ghetto. Their technological means entirely impair their objectives. A century hence, this grand gesture will be seen at best, as a quaint example of humans playing with a new toy, treating the technology like magic. 3D printing has a destiny apart from copying artifacts. And because, as it turns out, they did release the model data, thus allowing anyone to print the bust, The artists vindicated Benjamin, knowingly or not. Their democratic gesture will translate into the fact that visiting the original will be a little bit less special and unique. All the same, these copies will never carry the aura of the ancient work. While some people will benefit from seeing a model they would otherwise never have had access to, there is no substitute for the real thing. A further distinction must also be made here. These reproductions are post-industrial copies of a pre-industrial artifact. If Ms. al and Mr. Nellis want to produce something more meaningful than taking a photograph of a painting, they should use a 3D printer to create something life-changing that people have never seen before and distribute that on the Internet. Up until that happens, the 3D printable handguns that can be downloaded are far more newsworthy than this. Be that as it may, as we face such new and disruptive potential of accessible production in the 3D and thus potentially the architectural medium, Benjamin was facing it in film. This is also one of the reasons why his critique is becoming ever more vital to architecture. As we already noted, his definition and discussion of aura is merely a prelude to a section where he discusses the metamorphosis of human sense perception. After all, it is the transformation of politics and culture, and of who pulls those strings, which is at stake in his argument. Benjamin mentions the groundbreaking late 19th century work of Riegel and Wichhoff, These scholars resisted the traditional classicist view of late antiquity as simple decline and observed the emergence of genuinely new, if less admired, art forms characteristic of a distinct culture, that which we call Byzantine, beginning in the 5th century. Benjamin credits their analysis with pointing out the formal transformations involved, but laments that they neglected to study, or perhaps had no way of studying, what he calls the social transformations expressed by these changes of perception. And if changes in the medium of contemporary perception can be comprehended as decay of the aura, it is possible... To show its social causes. He argues that aura surrounds not only historical objects, but also natural scenes, and that the contemplation of such a scene is useful to better understand the social consequences of aura. In a rhetorical turn strikingly reminiscent of Kant's discussion of beauty in the Critique of Judgment, Benjamin attempts to understand dynamics active within art by stepping back into observation of the natural world. Like his philosophical forebearer, Benjamin sees aura as sharing with disinterested beauty the common character of distance. This is an intellectual rather than physical space. Benjamin describes that if someone is observing a scene with mountains in the background in which sunlight filters through the branches of a nearby tree, this allows for the mental remove necessary for artistic contemplation. Similar reasoning directly informed the picturesque movement in the 18th century English garden design. We would even go so far as to argue that Kant's perspective would later be aptly described by John Cage's well-noted saying that you can put a frame around anything and make it art. It is by isolating and conceptually distancing the object that it acquires an artistic feeling, that moribund, erratic presence that Benjamin is running an autopsy on. If these analyses of art turned out to be correct, they would situate Cage not as the piano-smashing revolutionary he is commonly supposed to be, but as a celebratory, decadent reactionary living and operating fully within a dying Western tradition. As he takes on a future orientation within a collapsing present, Benjamin is in a lonely position of analysis, looking backwards at the tracks of history as he sits in the rear window of a train. From the rickety curves receding, he divines the course of a new and unstable culture about to rise while knowing that a sharp enough turn will send the train careening off the rails. In one of the most awkwardly phrased conceptual transitions of his essay, Benjamin snaps abruptly out of his examination of natural landscape aura to proclaim that he has found how to discover the sort of cultural momentum he has just described. Benjamin's very Kantian image of the mountains and the branch makes it easy to comprehend the social bases of the contemporary decay of the aura. What is missing in his line of delivery is that he is contrasting the older Kantian style of artistic contemplation to the newer dynamic of the film-going and magazine-consuming public. As a start, he explicitly contrasts the general qualities of uniqueness and permanence to those of transience and reproducibility. He then charges that the decay of aura has been driven by two social impulses. The first is the desire of contemporary masses to bring things closer reproducing a 3D model of a -a one-of-a-kind Egyptian artifact and uploading it online certainly does call for people to download it and bring it near them. For works that are mechanically produced from the outset, recall also the torrent of acquisitive desire that was unleashed in the late 90s when internet music-sharing platforms were a new social phenomenon, reproducing music digitally across the world on a phenomenal new scale. The second impulse is that of mass leveling, which brings us to his analysis of transformed social perception. Quoting the Danish novelist Johannes V. Jensen, Benjamin states that, "...to pry an object from its shell." to destroy its aura is the mark of a perception whose sense of the equalness of things Sinn für das gleichartige in der Welt has increased to such degree that it extracts it even from a unique object by means of reproduction thus the uploaded wireframe model printed and presented to Cairo as if it were the same thing. A sense of greater equity is perhaps apt because others can make an identical gesture with ease. Pretending, however, to turn the printing gesture into a singular and symbolic event is easily revealed as hollow. It makes one wonder What sound would result from gently tapping with a hammer on the printed bust? When our culture presents public idols to the crowds, they are no longer inwardly filled with tiny statues, but multiply externally to an even greater magnitude consumed through various media. The conclusion that Benjamin draws from his observation on perceptual change is that he was noticing in the theoretical sphere what had been previously manifest in the science of statistics, namely, reality is being adjusted to the masses, and the masses are being adjusted to reality. He considers this to be a process of unlimited scope as much for thinking as for perception. So, while Alois Riegel did not have access to the cultural data that would have allowed him to understand the change in perception that occurred as aspects of the Roman world transformed into the Byzantine, Benjamin feels he does have sufficient cultural data for using the transformations of art to explain the changes in perception, and therefore the shifts in the currents of power coursing through our own society. If we take a step back, a lot of this talk of artistic transformation matching social evolution rings true. At the beginning of the modern, what Spengler called the Faustian West, frames of reference, those engines of distance, became very important to art. The first great expression of the Western world system, the Gothic cathedrals of the 12th century, were complicit in putting the priests and the laity on the same side of the altar. Both, then, shared a common perspective, facing a single, central space that would soon host holy images. Europe promptly saw a revival in panel painting. As per Benjamin's formulation, art followed rather than led society. And so, the materials and craft concepts of the panel painting were somewhat similar to Roman mummy portraits, a bit less so to the processional Byzantine icons, but the mode of social perception was totally different. Roman funerary portraits were occulted in a crypt, but selectively accessible as family memorials. In agreement with the Greco-Roman inclination to best understand the immediately physical, the visual symbol was placed on the body itself. Nearness and solidity were valued. Distance was minimized as much as possible. After Christianity was established, Byzantine icons dealt with nearness, but a nearness of the immaterial, of the spirit. They illuminated the profound divine within the soul of the believer by means of indicating an idea. Macrocosm and microcosm were brought into accord which is why iconophiles argued that these images were not idols. The Gothic cathedrals themselves lacked the intimacy of the Roman crypt or the cavernous symmetry of the Greek cross plan of Eastern churches. The Latin cross layout of the cathedral implied visual frames at the altar and at the colonnaded side aisles still used today for the stations of the cross where Even in new churches, you see paintings in a kind of niche. Chapels sprouted like buds from a Gothic innovation, the ambulatory. This was a round arc at the top of the cross layout, designed to solve the human traffic jams caused by Easter communion. These chapels created rays of perspective where the direction of the gaze, if drawn in dotted lines upon a plan, would create something like a sunburst pattern around the axis. The symmetrical and linear nave of Cathedral's prefigured linear perspective. From what Benjamin is showing us about nearness and distance, Brunelleschi's discovery of the techniques for portraying linear perspective on a flat surface was hardly a bolt from the blue, nor was it mostly informed by the optics of Arab scholars, as is often thought to be the case. The scientists of the caliphates, such as al-Hassan, were in a significant way keeping to their own systems sense of architectonic space. Islamic culture shared the same world picture as the Byzantine, that of the cavern illuminated by the deep, deep light of the divine. The study of optics was even morphologically, in this mold of understanding how the cavern-shaped eye creates a microcosmic image of the macrocosmic world, just as God had created an image of himself in man within the dome of the firmament. By contrast, the European Faustian world system dealt with space as infinite linear extension, which we explored with some detail in Episodes 20 and 21 on Kandinsky. The axis of cathedrals reflects this spatialization. It is not by accident that Brunelleschi's demonstration of linear perspective in painting was staged inside the doors of the then unfinished and especially humongous Florentine Cathedral he had helped engineer, facing the old baptistry across the way. He could have chosen any rectilinear plaza for the external view. Why the cathedral? Imagine turning around and facing away from the painting, looking down the nave, and you will see his method's inspiration. In a sufficiently large cathedral, the astute eye, when standing at the door facing the altar, which opens on the center axis, will notice that parallel lines converge. The painter Giotto had, some time earlier, developed a primitive and inexact sense of this. For Brunelleschi, Arab scholarship provided the crucial and final key to the solution by suggesting the supremely unintuitive fact that the lines converged to a single point placed at the viewer's subjective eye level. The potentially infinite extension beginning with the first Gothic cathedrals that reoriented priests and parishioners to face a holy abyss of divine images together had, by the 1400s, grown distant enough to reveal some underlying principles. Brunelleschi was not so much inventing something as giving form to the precise rules to a means of understanding space that had been percolating down to him for almost 300 years. That shift in perception began as the West was rising, sometimes literally, out of the swamps in the 1100s and clicked over, into refined formalization as the Renaissance marked the early edge of the West's peak. Much further on, as the 19th century drew to a close and there was a broad consensus across radicals and conservatives alike that terminal decline was irrevocable, what happened to art? The formerly characteristic elements of distance went away. Up to this point, linear perspective distinguished and defined Western painting from all other cultures. But flatness arrived in the picture plane as perspective was discarded. And by the way, listeners and members especially, Tell us if you would like episodes on Erwin Panofsky and Clement Greenberg, who wrote excellent essays on space and flatness in 20th century art, respectively. The heavy golden frames eventually fell out of favor, spiritualized into conceptual art's intellectual framing devices as the vital and the visceral bled out of Western civilization. Abstract painting dispensed with the illusion of depth, and therefore distance was removed from within the artwork as well as from our relationship to it. As Benjamin had observed, art was following the change in technology if you define things as he did, with the social perspective of a distant original versus approximate copy as a determining factor. So, this begs the question, how does the nearness of mechanical reproduction inform our currently transforming sense of space? Whether we realize it or not, the architecture of the coming centuries will be shaped by whatever path the rails of history take. Join us as we continue our journey with Benjamin and imagine the shape and space of future imagination, next time on Lapsus Lima.